Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're listening to After Law, broadcasting from the beautiful South Berlin. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to um, a special edition of Achtung Mill. Joining me to try and mark the Remembrance Week in our own way. Joining me is my co-conspirator, Mr. Neil Fissler. Welcome to the show, Neil. Hello, Nick. How are you going, mate? Good afternoon, everyone. Going well. I thought the uh, we're just talking off air, listeners, about the club's ceremonies before the the derby game at the weekend. Um, we we do this kind of thing very very well, Neil, as a, as a club, and I thought it was a really touching and moving ceremony on on Saturday. Simple and yet effective all for it. Um, I must admit, the last post and then the the poem before it always kind of gets you, doesn't it? it does um, and it brings yeah. out the silence. What got me because obviously I wasn't there was. It's total silence, and then a bloody train goes past, just to give you a little bit of dose of reality. Yeah, it wasn't. You could have heard a pin drop, and then all of a sudden a train goes flying past. And uh, yeah, very well marked. We do these things brilliantly at Millwall. I, I know that we are. I, I know that as Millwall fans, we're very quick to criticise, and we do mm. jump on certain things. But 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 Saturday. Uh, Mel did an amazing job putting the collection together. As ever, same same each year. I mean, uh, I actually hadn't had a chance, listeners, to buy a poppy, but I took the chance at the den on Saturday to um, to get one. Um, there's some soldiers there doing the, the the selling part, and that's just nice. I think one of the, th- I mean, the, the ceremony, as you say, there was a train that trundled past, but somehow, I mean, for me, I suppose it broke the silence in that sense, but it just reminds you that. As with some of the things we might touch on in this conversation, Neil, um, there's there's you know there's, there's conflict and there's people involved. Life continues despite um, we don't have a conflict now, thankfully. But you know, trains run past, life goes on in the midst of some very um, difficult situations sometimes. And the reason we're doing this, listeners, is we're, we're trying to do our own version of we've we've covered Neil over time plenty of war heroes from who've played for the club and situations but I thought it might be nice just to look at um how how the, the particularly the second world how it affected Millwall Football Club because it impacted all, all of life but we're a Millwall podcast so it's just interesting to look how it actually affected us as a football club because it had a major major effect on us on our standing in the game and long-term prospects really didn't it yeah we were just starting to go places and uh yeah uh, I think we spoke about it on the fixture show the other week, didn't we? We got to an FA Cup semi-final. Yeah. We'd been promoted from Division 3 South. Yeah. I think we'd won that, hadn't we? And uh, we were spending some money. I think we actually broke our transfer record at some point in all of that. Yeah, we did. I'm just reading... Um, I make no apologies, listeners, for referring a lot to James Murray's lines of the South on this because it's a bit of a definitive um, history and it, it covers this period quite well. It's 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 like you get a lot of um, websites, magazines, even than books. What if what if what if this happened in history? What if that didn't happen? Where would it take you? But for me, it was quite a, a small scale thing in a way, given given the, the major events we're describing. But what if? 
well, if the war hadn't broken out, well, you know, reading James Murray's book, Neil, we were very, very well financially placed at the start of the conflict, 1939-40. We'd signed um, a Macmillan, purchased Macmillan and BT. don't know their first names. Walter Macmillan. Uh, and then we'd installed 4,000 seats in the main stand. I think that held 8,000. Did I read that? That'd be the old stand that would eventually, um, we'd lose that during the course of the of the war years. Um, but we were gearing up for first division football, Neil. Yeah, there was ambition there, wasn't there? Little old Millwall that had been plodding along in yeah. third division south, occasionally in the second division. Yep. Uh, from when we got elected into the league in what 1919, 1920, yeah. 1920, whatever it was. Yeah. And uh, we'd got us, well, we'd got our act together. The, we had a brilliant squad. Yeah. There was the finance there, which, as we know in Millwall history, isn't always available, is it? It's, it's one of those things. I know we've spoke about it with Merv, haven't we? The good times always seem to follow the bad times, and the bad times last a little while, and then... Followed by disaster, normally. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just fascinating to read this stuff, listeners. I mean, these are sentences that are quite hard to read in a way because Millwall, um, at the outbreak of war in the last few days of peacetime, were, along with Arsenal, remained amongst the best supported clubs in London. And, you know, and we were very well placed financially as a consequence of that. We were, there were even plans I read for the, the stand to become a, a two-tier stand, a little bit like what you might have got at Highbury, something along those lines. Um, and then, of course, you know, um, conflict breaks out on the Polish-German border, um, instigated by the, uh, by the by the German regime, and then, and also the Soviet Union invaded. And next thing you know, the world's at war, as the as the, as the um, program used to have it, um, which would affect everyone across the board, but Mill especially, because one of the earliest restrictions imposed on football, Neil, was a gate restriction. I mean, just reading James Murray's book, we go from being one of the wealthiest clubs in the game to being on our financial knees by Christmas because um, restrictions are imposed on, on gates and 8,000 maximum attendance. I suppose that would be because of the danger of bombing raids with so many people gathered in one place. Yeah, that's right. Obviously, fun enough, I'd, yeah, well, I'd made, the note here, it was Sir Philip Game, who was the Metropolitan Police Commissioner at the time, Yeah, imposed a crippling 8,000 limit on crowds. And in Millwall's case, that really was crippling. Yeah. Um, eventually, I think what happened was they actually lifted that to about 15,000. But each turnstile had a numbered ticket, apparently, and once those tickets had sold out, it was up to the police as to whether or not they let any more people in. Yeah. And yeah. in Millwall's case, it must have been a tight squeeze, and being where we were, obviously the Surrey docks were prime target during the Blitz, weren't they? They'd have been... Absolutely. Very, very difficult. I mean, just reading uh, gate restrictions in, in danger areas, as you've just described, Surrey Docks, Bermondsey, industrial dockside areas. Um, gate restrictions in those areas were set at 8,000. Um, elsewhere in the provinces, 15,000 could gather, but 8,000 only at football matches. Um, a rumour spread, this is in early 1939, so we hadn't really... The, the, the war followed a strange early pattern, listeners, was something called the phony war, where although there was a conflict, there was no clash of arms this, at this early stage. And uh, certainly, I don't think there was any, any air raids until 1940. Um, but certainly they were operating under the um, precaution that bombing would spread terror and, and, and casualties on a grand scale. But there was a rumour spread that um, this 8,000... Uh, limit had been had been increased, which wasn't the case. And um, as James puts in, the riot ensued <laughs> outside the den with people trying to get into watch football, and they could, they weren't allowed in. So um, very little changes in in this life, especially down Coldblow Lane. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the probably the first major time that we need or date that we need to really consider is the start of what became known as the Blitzkrieg in September. 
1940. Um, the, the Battle of Britain began really in, in I think it was about June, July, after the fall of France. And um, as much as um, as much as the Germans tried to um, to knock out fighter command, they couldn't. So they had to switch tactics, which involved the mass bombing of the industrial centres of Britain, in particular London, in particular the Surrey docks, and that all began on September the seventh. And I think you you got a great report, Neil, of a game. Was it against Charlton? Played on a game played on that day, on the opening day of the um, Blitzkrieg. Yeah, it was. Uh, Fun enough, we were just talking about it off air, and uh, I was reading about it earlier on in a great book. If anybody goes on Amazon, it's called Gas Masks for Goalposts Football <laughs> in Britain During the Second World War by Anton Rippon. You can pick it up for a couple of quid, it is a fantastic history book. But uh, a report in the Sunday Mirror, of all places. Uh, hmm. And it's just brilliant. I'll just quickly read some of it. Uh, they played football in the war zone yesterday. London area matches ended with Goering's bombers overhead, chased by our fighters and fired at by our AA guns. Players and crowds ne- uh, turned never a hair. <laughs> Good God Almighty! They all think they're Shakespeare. They? <laughs> Never hear. <laughs> Some matches ended on the sirens, but don't let that worry you. Results uh, stand on finishing on the finishing score for league <laughs> and polls purposes. So, so they're thinking of the from this Paddy Power nonsense, was there? Well, nothing changes. Um, yeah, yeah. In the Charlton versus Millwall match, players had begun to troop off when they heard the warning. The referee called the players together and told them there was only a minute left. This was actually uh, slightly wrong. Hmm. I think uh, there was there was a there was an air raid obviously and uh, and uh, shrapnel from the nearby anti aircraft guns started to fall on the stadium. See well see they were determined to you know, allow us to beat Charlton, were they? <laughs> a minute to go. Everybody runs and takes cover and uh Shrapnel falling from the sky is guys your lengths at Charlton go to <laughs> To avoid the defeat by little old Millwall, eh? Herman Goering above, the RAF chasing after the Macat flying up and the shrapnel falling on, on people in the in the ground. I think I would have turned a hair if that <laughs> happened to me. I think I would have run for cover. Yeah, yeah well, one. real wall would have stayed on the terraces. <laughs> yes, I think, I think I would have had to check out of that one. Um, I mean, I, I'm just looking at Lions of the South. I think they... Um, they also mentioned an interesting, I mean, our manager at the time, of course, listeners and, and Neil and I have mentioned him a good few times, a, a, a wonderful character. I think he, uh, probably the best way I can put it, Charlie Hewitt, Charles Hewitt. Um, cheerful Charlie Hewitt. Cheerful Charlie. Um, they just mentioned a game we play against Arsenal in the in the war. Football being reorganised into um, a war league, so to try and restrict travelling, they played a lot of local derbies. But prior to the Arsenal game, Charlie Hewitt was driving in a, on a Cheshire road with his wife, visiting relatives, when a German bomber swooped low out of the sky above him, frightening the Millwall Supremo out of his skin. Um, he would actually become, um, I think he had a naval connection, Hewitt. He became Lieutenant Hewitt, I think, I've read as in, in other reports. So um, that was an early introduction to the, the harsh realities in Cheshire of... Um, of, of wartime life, and um, as you say there, Neil, I mean, the idea of shrapnel falling from the sky onto a stadium for people <laughs> different times. I think that's probably the best yeah, way. We I mean, worry about COVID, COVID, or ice on the on, on the terraces in cold <laughs> weather. I mean, I've got, I haven't got quite, I can't quite match the descriptive power of that one. I've, I've pulled out um, a game played against Crystal Palace, and I think it had been a week or two before the print of the Croydon Observer, which was the 21st of September 1940. So bear in mind, listeners, that the, the Blitz... I think it was the following week. I think it was actually the following week, Nick, right. that game was played. So. so air raid sirens stopping 
Palace their, their strength not tested at Mill. Hitler's bombers did not give Crystal Palace a fair chance to test their strength against Millwall at the Den on Saturday last. Um, after about 30 minutes play, when Millwall were leading 1-0, the air raid siren sounded and the game was eventually abandoned. I suppose they would take the players off and clear the area as best they could and wait and see if there was going to be an all-clear and then you could carry on playing football. Um, <laughs> mad, isn't it? Absolutely mad. That they, it's that... mad. I mean... I mean, the other thing, this is clearly a Croydon paper because um, there's Palace, they're talking about Palace, Palace, Palace and their strength not being tested. Leave aside the Herman Goering Luftwaffe. <laughs> we were leading. <laughs> I don't, don't really go into that. We were winning the game and they've taken them off the pitch. Um, fascinating. I mean, this is just a little side piece that I'm looking at as I'm reading the newspaper here. There was a, a well-known boxer's lucky escape. This is also in the Croydon Observer. Jim... Tuahig or Tuareg, the print is a little bit wayward there. A well-known middleweight who had a lucky escape. Picture of him in boxing stance when he had a lucky escape when bombs fell on, on a working neighbourhood in a district near London in the early hours of West Wednesday morning. Um, as ever, these they were always very vague on dates and vague on locations where bombing happened because they didn't want to give the information to the enemy. There was, there was um, you know... Certainly, rumours of a spy network that would feed back, um, you know, information that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so there we are. One game is abandoned because or suspended because of ACAC, we have one because of an air raid. Um, I mean, wonderful stuff. Um, I mean, the, the, the these were league wartime leagues, these were organized and reorganized through the course of the whole um six years of the conflict variations on a theme as they try to find yeah they um, regionalized things because yeah because obviously they didn't want teams traipsing all over the country did they and don't forget a lot of teams had players called up yeah a lot of teams relied on guest players and we've done a couple of shows on Millwall guest players haven't we Um, guesting because they were in services and around the country yeah so quite often I think I think a little bit later in the war, I think we played West Ham and Bill Voisey had to come out of retirement and play himself. Take because, to the field. Because yeah. he couldn't find anybody else to play. We only had 10 players. I mean, the other, the other thing to, to say is, um, and we were touching on this before we, we started recording this, it, it sometimes strikes me the further we get away from these these times, the more, um, the more distance there is between us. And, and there's a tendency to think of, um, the people that endured the conflicts and, and lived through it as somehow different, when in actual fact they are, they're us in a sense, just in a different time. So, with all the good, the bad, and the indifferent that comes with with life generally, I mean, I'm just reading here that, um, and I can understand this, that some players um, in the initial stages of the conflict were refusing to do football training, and the reason that they were refusing to do football training was because their pay had been set at a mere 30 shillings a match, which um, I've worked out be about um, be about 60, 70 pounds. That's how much they would, in modern modern terms. Um, so they had a pay restriction of 30 shillings a match, um, and they didn't think <laughs> it wasn't worth their while. Um, and I find it interesting because people are people, and, you, you know, there's... Yes, there's a war on, and yes, you know you're you're, you're playing football for the entertainment, but you're not going to do it for nothing. And yet they were kind of um, refusing to play for such low wages, which is an interesting insight into people's mindsets at that time. Anyway, yeah, footballers they weren't very well paid, were they? They were on a par with the average man in the street, I think, back then. And, one, uh, one pound in I looked up on the Bank of England site, and one one pound. In um, in nineteen forty, would be worth about fifty seven, fifty eight pound now. So they were being paid thirty shillings, so that'd be about one pound fifty. So you're talking about seventy, eighty quidish, something like that, which they refused to do. Um, as, as, as James here puts it, meagre returns for their skills. They were angered by these meagre returns. I think the club was restricted in terms of its ability to pay as well. I mean, there was there was a pay cap generally, wasn't there in the in the game? Um, but they weren't taking gate receipts on the on the scale they needed. Yeah, well, so. exactly. Yeah, well, as we said, 
yeah, the Metropolitan Police imposed a limit on how many people could get in. So, and yeah. um, I don't know how much it was to get in back then, but I bet you, I bet you nine, yeah, but nine thousand didn't really cover it that much. No, and no. you would have had rationing, so you couldn't rationing had probably been brought in by then. So. So no. there probably wasn't the refreshment sales. I don't know what refreshment sales were like back then. I guess it was just a meat pie or something. Meat pie and beer or something. Or something yeah, like Bovril or something like that. But Interesting also in the early days, I think they couldn't keep to this, but early on, Mill declined to use guest players. They preferred to stick with their own men, as they put it, as James puts it, to whom they'd rather pay the 30 shillings as a loyalty. Um they couldn't sustain that. Men would be joining the forces, sending to... I mean, I noticed here Tom Brody became a PT instructor in the army and they would be sent away and it just wasn't possible to continue without that guest system. It was the only way that the clubs could function at that time. Yeah, but a lot of clubs actually used that that guest function very well. Millwall yeah. being Millwall, I suppose. We want to do things differently, don't they? We do. I always, you know, just above by Christmas, and I'm going to guess that's Christmas 1939, listeners. The Lions were in a perilous financial plight, and the subject of closing the club had been discussed at the highest levels, at the ballroom level. Um, prior to the war, we um, got used to big crowds, 30 to 40 then, and now they're down to um, 8,000 max. So, you yeah. know, the, 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 club was, the club was in trouble. Achtung, Milbein. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But one thing never changes, Neil, uh, and that's the um when we play Crystal Palace. Um there's always um there's always drama and I found, I put them on Twitter actually the other day. We've already had one Palace game uh, delayed by an air raid sign, but I've, I found another one. This is a great report. I just love that. I thought I'd mention it again just because I've, I've, I've put it out there. Um, this is from um, the paper is the uh, the Croydon Times. Refer- Sunday Dispatch, excuse me, 29th of September 1940, Sunday Dispatch. Referee calls soccer teams off of the Palace football field. Mill captain ordered off. After a protest against the penalty award, this is by a journalist called Russell Stannard, who says, and I can't help but read this in a rather hoity-toity voice, that in a long experience of football troubles and scenes, in inverted commas, 
he cannot recall anything like what, what like what happened like what happened on the Crystal Palace ground in the game of Millwall. The um, award of a penalty kick started a rumpus, Neil. Um, the kick was given for a foul on Gillespie of Palace. Strong Millwall protests followed. And twice the ball was kicked away from the penalty spot by Millwall players. Once the ball went into the crowd. Um, trouble then began between a few Millwall players and a section of the crowd at the back of the goal. Uh, the referee ordered off Millwall's international winger and captain J.R. Smith. There was another incident. And then the referee took both teams to the dressing rooms um, where they were absent for five minutes. Then the game was resumed about J.R. Smith. Um, eventually Palace um, winning 2-1. And as it says here, Luftwaffe didn't even drop an incendiary bomb. Um, sounds like a bit of a scuffle, doesn't it? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Mate, it sounds like... Yeah, but it sounds like we, you know, we always get shit refs, don't <laughs> Doesn't say where he's from. They've got another report which does say where he's from. I do think there's a bit of that in that. I mean, you know, I, I think one of the things that strike me, I always remember as a kid, you know, I'm talking about the 70s and, and you get your grandfather and your dad telling you how these modern players, you know, we had none of this brawling and fighting back in the 70s. There was there's all sorts. We had none of this when we were young and you had no means of disproving them back then. I had no internet and I had no access to the British newspaper archive because that would have been evidence to show that that was all bollocks. Yeah, but, <laughs> it, it happened. Yeah, but that would have been. Yeah, but that would have been a case for the. Yeah, but that would have been a case for the defence, wouldn't it? That one. Absolutely. Oh dear. So yeah, there we are. So that was uh, in September. Then just to continue the um, the theme, there were the following March we played Palace again, again at um, Selhurst Park. Croydon Times reports the referee was handled roughly this time. Now, this bloke is a Mr. R. Greenwood, not Ron Greenwood, I don't think, uh, Mr. R.C. Greenwood of Upper Norwood, who awarded Palace a penalty uh, in a 5-3 loss uh, for the Lions. Um, again, the referee called both teams off the field to cool off for 10 minutes this time. He's taken it up by five. Um, but in the award of a penalty, a crowd of Mill players surrounded the referee and two of them took him by the jacket... And shook him forcibly. <laughs> shook him forcibly. The referee struggled free, and play was held up for some minutes whilst he cautioned the players. Um, and then that, that, that was um, the referee continued. This is in the Palace paper. The referee continued to be flustered by the vigorous tactics of Millwall in the second half. Palace deserved their victory. Um, sounds like there was no so love lost between Millwall the local referee. <laughs> Because up in Norwood being actually Crystal Palace, that's yeah, right. not make too many bones about it. No, yeah, the guy was probably on the payroll of absolutely you know, correct anyway. Yeah, <laughs> getting 30 yeah, shillings. Grassy Greenwood's uh relatives are listening to this, Tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if it in relation to the Greenwood family? It would like they to become West Ham um, icons. I don't know. Um. There we are. Yeah, but let's um, not. Yeah, but let's not have any more conspiracy theories. It it just goes to show that there was passion there. That even though yeah. the war's raging, that's right. That and you're not playing your normal league games. There's still there's, there's, there's human still life going on. Feeling, isn't there? That there's still professional pride and. That's right, and they they give a shit. You know, they want to win yeah. this game. Yes, you know, you can talk 1941, 1940s. These were dark times for the country. We were fighting alone against the Germans, uh, with with the the Empire forces, of course. But um, you know, invasion was expected. There was still a, a strong chance of that, even in 1941. So it's interesting that even under Millwall <laughs> players are still kicking the shit out of the referee. <laughs> Life goes on, and yeah, that's right. That to rough up the referee, I think it's just a wonderful insight into how human nature doesn't doesn't change no matter what the times. Um, and on on the same on the same line, really, I think now I'm gonna twist and turn that theme, if I may. Um, we've mentioned Charlie Hewitt um, already, um, but there was a wonderful. I say wonderful, fantastic to read of this stuff all these years afterwards. Okay, so he'd been sacked after an FA inquiry for being on the fiddle. He'd, um, he'd allegedly um, he'd allegedly um, been signing chitties for a pound um, expenses, uh, for 10 shillings, sorry, 10 shillings uh, expenses, 
um, when actually they've been claiming a pound. I mean, this, the sums are so paltry that it's just incredible that this has been going on. But um, And this came to light to the FA's inquiry uh, notice, causing some boardroom um, kerfuffle by a, a, a disgruntled clerk in the Millwall admin office who found said that um, one of his colleagues got to watch Millwall whilst he had to do the books. And because of that, he, he, he put the... Um, he put the bubble in about Charlie claiming a pound when he was signing for 10 shillings. And that led to him being sacked as a, as, as Millwall manager in 1940. Um, there was probably also a... There was probably also a uh, Charlie had probably rubbed the guy up the wrong way. Charlie <laughs> rubbed quite a few people up the wrong way. If you speak to players from that and later eras... Yeah. He seems like um, a man of some... Uh, I think he had a bit of a drink problem. It was there was um, a wonderful description. I haven't got it to hand in in James Murray's book, but it, it described Charlie Hewitt as an account of his personality, um, the kind of man. I'm paraphrasing slightly, listeners, but it was, it was to the effect that he was a kind of man that would. There was his opinion, which was correct, and he would not entertain any other opinion that was not correct. Um, <laughs> I think that was... he once actually banned a journalist from the Daily Express. Right. <laughs> Uh, he banned him in 1939, I think it was, and the ban was still in place 10 years later. <laughs> and uh, Dave Sullivan, or a number of years later, I think it could have been 10, and Dave Sullivan, Mill historian, said, yeah. can, can you find anything out about this? <laughs> uh, so, I, so I replied to him, well, Charlie's not one to hold a grudge, was he? <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah well, I know there was a little uh, yeah well, I know there was a little thing about the conflict getting in the way <laughs> but I think if Charlie held a grudge against you it continued a grudge against you well I mean it, it's a it's a good point actually because again I, I keep returning to this 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 fundamental point listeners that the nation was in peril whilst all this drama played out you know they they really were. Nazi troops in Calais ready to invade if they could. Thankfully, they couldn't. Um, so the country was in, 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 in you know, its darkest hour. And yet somehow at Millwall, we managed to sack our manager over 10 shillings, fiddle, and then engage in a slander um, allegation in which um, the, ch- the club's chairman, Tom Thorne, who I believe, Neil, correct me if I'm wrong, was one of the original men who formed the club on, on the Isle of Dogs. I think the Thorns go back a long way to the island, certainly. That's um, right. And then the Thorn that I believe sold, uh, he was going to sell up to uh, Asda. I yeah, believe yeah. He, was, he, he was a distant relation of some description. So they'd been around the club for... A number of years. In fact, it would actually be quite good to do a, a show at some point. I know we've got so many ideas, and we're not short of ideas on this show, listeners. Yeah, uh, I hope we're not short of listeners for it. But anyway, we'll see. About <laughs> that. Um, we've got plenty of ideas. Time, but there clearly had been ructions in the boardroom over the wisdom of proceeding with these. Um, what should we call it? A bit of fiddle. I don't know. Signing for a. 10 shillings and claiming a pound level, literally. Anyway, it seems that um, in the course of a, um, I don't know if it'd be a drink fueled boardroom meeting, Neil, but um, Thomas Thorne was alleged to have called Lieutenant William Charles Hewitt, manager and secretary of Millwall, a quizzling, a quizzling, no less, in the course of this stormy boardroom meeting. Quizzling for younger listeners, if we have any younger listeners. A byword for traitor was a Norwegian politician who betrayed his country to the Germans. So there's no lower, no lower insult, particularly then. Even to, it still carries power to this day to be a quizzling. Um, and I think that was <laughs> that was the level of debate that took place in the um, in the Millwall boardroom. So Hewitt took a libel action against him, or slander. I should be correct. Um, which he would actually win. He'd actually win. The um, the FA found against Hewitt. Um, but he, he, he took a, a, a courtroom action against um, Thorne for slander, and he would win £100 worth of damages. You were not one to hold a grudge, though, Charlie, was he, as we've said? No. So he was very quick to <laughs> very quick to turn to the court, wasn't he? It, it, it's just unbelievable. Can you imagine, in if we put this into modern context, COVID is raging out of control. <laughs> and then, 
and then behind the scenes at Millwall Football Club, <laughs> Gary Rowett has badly fallen out with John <laughs> Errolson and Steve Kavanagh. <laughs> yeah, there are thousands of people dying. <laughs> And, uh, a foreign power you, is imminent, you know. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine what social media and Hoff were made of all right of Yeah, back then the the reporting was quite tame, wasn't it? But it was very dry. I mean, you, they would have gone to town with it nowadays. Um, I mean, just to repeat, one pound in 1940 terms is £57.50, I think I read on the Bank of England. If he's been fiddling... Um, he's been signing out a pound. He's, he's basically been fiddling, um, signing for 25 quid and taking 50. Um, but yeah, these are the levels that we, we, we're talking about. So quite paltry sums. And for that, um, the club tears itself apart in the courtroom. Um, and eventually Charlie is awarded. Charlie, I sound like I know him now. Lieutenant Charles Hewitt, I should call him to me. Lieutenant Hewitt is awarded one hundred pounds of damage, so about five hundred quid in modern terms, um, as a as a as a result. Well, maybe more, probably a little bit more, five thousand, maybe. Um, in an inconsiderable sum of money. No, in wartime, um, and that that was that was the end of it. That that this report is from the Nottingham Journal, dated second of April. Um, Lieutenant Charles Hewitt was awarded one hundred pound damages. When the the hearing of slander brought against him by the uh, against what he brought by him against the club's chairman was was concluded at the king's bench yesterday. Um, just to put a little sad twist on it, I, and I, I I find it quite because um, we're laughing, we're, you know, because it's got it's got this humorous tone to it now. But um, the uh, chairman Tom Thorne would die one month later in May 1941. He, he died on his way home from church in Devon. He was 70. Um, following, and they mentioned the slander uh, action brought by the club's former manager, Lieutenant Hewitt, um, which is kind of like a sad twist to what otherwise would be uh, a slightly amusing story. But clearly, the uh, the weight of all that, and, and you know, I'll come back to the point you made earlier on, Neil, that people care about Millwall, and that would have weighed heavy on Tom Thorne's shoulders, I think, that whole action. Yeah, he was a master builder, and and devoted everything to Millwall. Millwall was this guy's life. Yeah, yeah. I think he was. I think he was a member of the FA Council, and he was well placed. Like yeah. So this was, this was a guy who joined the club. I think he probably, probably attended a lot of our early matches. He would have been there on the island. You know, yeah. it's it's um, that's when the. I'm sure I've seen. When we did some of the shows about um, Bob Hunter in the early years on the Isle of Dogs, there's there's a photo. I'm sure it's it's, it's Tom Thorne with Bob Hunter. These legends of the yeah, of Tom the Thorne. He was connected with the club from 1888. Yeah. Well, they didn't join the board of directors until 1901. This would have been major name. Been a guy that's seen us play virtually everywhere. Yeah, listeners might be asking, what's all this got to do with remembrance? And my answer to that is. It's a tangent in a sense, but I suppose it shows the the point of remembrance for me, listeners, is that it it, it marks the loss of these 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 events. It also shows to or it should demonstrate that life goes on around it, and this is this is life, you know, in all of its rich tapestry. Um, and this was going on at Millwall whilst the nation was in peril, and you can say it's trivial nil but that's what happens isn't it you know yeah but we've done plenty of shows on on the players that unfortunately may paid the ultimate sacrifice mm. and we've covered guests and it, it was just when you tweeted this this out the other day it just seemed like just a good excuse to spend a monday <laughs> afternoon <laughs> yeah, we don't mean, well we don't mean to trivialize it and we hope that people it's Don't not meant in that sense, no. It's just that it it just gives a sense of of the world collapsing, yeah, and Millwall imploding from the inside, really. and people still finding time to wage um, very personal petty, disputes, yeah, in the midst of it all. Personal vendettas, weren't they? Yeah. So it's as much for me, listeners, and you might disagree with me, and I welcome any 
any um, thoughts on that? I mean, it's 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 as much part of the story as 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 the acts of bravery and all the rest of it, which are, um, you know, which we've marked on, on previous shows. So it would just be interesting to show that in the middle of it all, you can still have um, comedy mixed with tragedy, I suppose. Achtung, Mailball. Neil, we, we move along, mate. And I, my next report I found was a report dated, um, it's actually um, from Dundee's paper, Dundee Telegraph. Um famous incident where the ground took a bomb bomb hit in 1943 and this this is probably one of the most unlucky incidents i mean i mean two, two strokes of bad luck really one was the bombing and then obviously the main stand would, would burn down shortly afterwards but this was an incident in uh, may where what was by then the, the luftwaffe were not waging anything like the mass raids they were not able to hit london on the same scale that they could in the early part of the war. Losses generally had become too much. And they were waging what became known as tip-and-run raids, where individual bombers would fly over and quite literally find something to aim at, or if you could aim at something, great. If not, they just unload their bombs anywhere and get the hell out of there if they could. Although these a uh, little bit of research, I don't think these, these this bomber got away. It was actually shut down. But having dropped a high-explosive bomb on the den, um, causing... Very famous damage. There's some wonderful photos and one in the uh, ballroom uh, of, of the damaged den, certainly one in, in lines of the south. It's It was quite a, quite a device. A, a metal um, crush barrier was sent 200 yards in the air, 200 yards in the air from the explosion. It's incredible. That would have been that would have been quite some sight, wouldn't it? You yeah. wouldn't want to have been there to have actually watched it. <laughs> but... No, no you, you might not have lasted long. I mean, there's, there's an image of the, uh, the volunteers after there was a, due to be a local cup final, London Senior Cup final was due to be played at the Den between Dulwich Hamlet and Tooting and Mitcham on the following Easter Monday. Um, I mean, the devastation of the... Anyone that was at Coldblow Lane will know where I'm talking. It was... From roughly from about halfway along the halfway line going towards the dog track end, that whole kind of sloping terracing area as it went down to uh, the floodlight there in, in our time, there was a clock there, I think, in, in, in the old days, um, was is basically rubble um, and, and rubble strewn across the pitch. Um, and amazingly, um, volunteer labour now got the ground together for the for Dulwich to beat. Tooting 5-4 on the 26th of April, 1943. Um, incredible. Yeah, we go on about the blitz spirit, don't they? Yeah. yeah don't we? But but that's what they very much did. <laughs> yeah, they weren't going to let a little thing like a bomb get in the way of a game of football, were they? No. Um, <laughs> get, get your priorities um, right. Yeah, but they're yeah, <laughs> to be admired, really, aren't they? That, that they can and get all of this stuff. Yeah, off the pitch, and you'll worry about it later. I mean, the images are remarkable. The old roof of Den, those that were there will know what I'm talking about. The roof on the halfway line is certainly about uh, one, the one. The end nearest the, the explosion is, is, is shattered, it, it, it strengthens up as it goes further away. Um, otherwise, that, that whole corner of the terracing is effectively a crater with rubble, and there's about about 12, 15 blokes in this picture clearing the rubble from the pitch to enable a, a, a local cup final to take place a few days later. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And this would be followed, Neil, of course, by the other disaster, which was the um, discarded cigarette that burned down the main stand. Again, a showpiece stand. I'm just going to read from um, Lines of the South, if I may. Um, the real fireworks were still to come after the bomb explosion. Mills players were changing at Selhurst Park after a 4-2 friendly Whilst back at the den, ground staff spotted a small fire in the main stand. Um, that was half an hour after the end of the, um, no, within that Dulwich, Dulwich tooting final, actually. Um, the stand was totally engulfed in flames, 8,000 seats and the distinctive gable in the 350-foot showpiece wooden structure perishing in the lapping flames as pools of black smoke lifted high above southeast London. Um, what, an, what a sad irony that a discarded match or cigarette had managed what even the Luftwaffe, Herman Goering couldn't do it. But a fag did do it. Going down Mill's main stand. Um you were discarded by some Dulwich fan. Probably. <laughs> or, or, some, or some Tootin and Mitchum fan. Of course, there would have been a lot of 
rubbish <laughs> would have been collected under stands in those days, wouldn't they? And everything yeah. would have been highly flammable. I mean, J James here described it well, Neil. It was a crippling blow, he says, one that the club has never truly recovered from. This, this book was written, listeners, in the mid-80s or just before the promotion season because we would recover from it with the construction of the new den, although that would nearly bankrupt us. But it's just interesting how that incident, those two incidents, particularly the fire, though, in 1943, transformed us from possibly being ready for first division football to never really being anywhere close to it after that. Yeah, we always remained little old Millwall, didn't we? From that point onwards, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, um, That's that how it was. Do you know what? I'm just thinking about it. Would we want any difference? That's another what if, isn't it? That's a good question. It's a what if, isn't it? So what if? I mean, I don't, I don't want to support. Well, we could have been supporting yeah. Arsenal, but a, a, a version of Arsenal. I think that's probably the best yeah. way to put it. The club. And would we be sanitised? Well, we'd have probably. Well, we'd have probably been kicked out of football a long time ago, <laughs> wouldn't we? <laughs> In the aftermath of the of the stand burning down, um, the club had. We've never wanted for ambition, listeners. In in our in our, our club, we've always had it. Um, they tried to get resources which weren't forthcoming because of the Second World War to build a new massive double-decker stand, um, which would have taken the ground cut 60,000 if that had come off. But the 60, uh, 60, 60,000 that was that would have been mighty. I mean, Highbury in its time would have been about that size in because it was all terracing back then, wasn't it? Um, yeah, yeah that, was, that was the aim. The terracing went back a long way in, in those times, didn't they? And yeah, and and whereas two people, three people could probably stand in the space of one person. Absolutely, and I suppose pre-war we were getting the crowds. And they wanted to get ready for post-war because by 43, it was still a way to go yet, but the, there was a general sense that the, the war was no longer going Germany's way and everyone started to think about what came next. But it's a good question that you're posing, actually. I've never thought of that. Because um, history turns on these things. History turned on that cigarette, that's for sure, because that took us away from being, a, until then, luckily escaped the, the privations of war in that in a, in a physical sense, but after that we were devastated. And um, you were considering that we were probably the nearest, we were probably the nearest football ground to the docks, wouldn't we? Been back yeah. then, West Ham would have been slightly a little way back from it. Yeah, um, and Palace in the middle of nowhere, a suburbia. There was no chance of that place getting improved, was there? I mean, I was actually, us and Charlton. James makes a really interesting point. I've never thought about this, Neil. I'm just reading as 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 on, onwards um, as I'm talking. Um, talking about the devastation to Bermondsey New Cross, also to our old home on the Isle of Dogs. The the old ground was was badly blitzed. It says the famous old Island pub, Islander pub, perished in enemy action. And this is the point that struck me. And so too did many homes of traditional mill supporters who, after being bombed out from the area, and I include my own family in this. Uh, bombed out from the era, never went, never to return. Um, my family moved out to Downham, and then we went to Nottingham. Um, and I think that story probably went from many, many people. So, you know, your links become more tenuous the further away you get from the ground. You lose that tight knit sense that the club has always been built on, especially back then. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thought. I'd never thought of that. The the effect of bombing in the sense of dispersing beginning a process and it would disperse the area generally which is you, you see now you know many of our fans don't live near the ground anymore do they so interesting um never thought of that they mentioned bill voisey first world war hero escaped death when he was the victim of a blasting though he clung on to the mills manager job for as long as he could not for gain but purely in the interest of millwall football club um so yeah um fascinating fascinating stuff that would devastate the ground the war would conclude Neil in nineteen forty-five with Mill in a in a World Cup final. Um, it was described here by Charles Buchan, who was a famous famous journalist. Um, produced an annual, didn't he? A, a, an annual um, soccer annual for kids, Charles Buchan soccer annual, and just, Arsenal player, Arsenal player, international. Uh, but Mill would reach the final of the war. South, the League South Cup, it has various names. World War Cup, I don't know if he's ever called that officially, but that was his unofficial name. 
Um, we get beat by Chelsea um, 2-0 in the final. Um, described by Charles Buchan as one of the poorest he's ever seen. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because I think Chelsea drew in players from all <laughs> kinds of clubs and we played by the rules. Yeah, that's... <laughs> yeah. get ready. Get ready for the rest of our lives, you know. Um, yeah, well, that and the fact I think we had uh Sam Bartram from the Spotters in goal, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, 90,000 crowd, um, watched by the Queen. Our current Queen Elizabeth II was there wearing ATS uniform, which was the um auxiliary service, I think it was like a an assistance for you know driving and and um, various labouring kind of things and, and stuff like that. So mechanics, I think she famously trained as a car mechanic during the war. But ninety thousand people um, were present. I think there was probably a real hunger. This 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 took place in April, nineteen forty five. The war had maybe a few more weeks to go before um, Hitler would would die and and, and Germany would surrender. Um, and that was Mills Mills Cup final until the late 1990s. Our only ever appearance at Wembley, of course, wasn't it? Um, famous images from the day: the Mill uh, team meeting the the King and and, the, and uh, Princess Elizabeth as she was then in in the crowd. It's um, uh, I think as as we've said already, and probably don't, don't want to flog it, but the, the the club came out of the war um, a fraction of what it was when it went into it, and we took a long, long time. Maybe we've never really recovered from it. I don't know. Um, certainly, our history turned at that point. Um, and we produced one of the poorest cup finals that Charles Buckham has ever seen in his life. <laughs> and this was the South final because obviously then it was split into South and North, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's was North final. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Bolton beat Manchester United over two games. It, funnily enough, 90,000 in Wembley and both of those grounds are games attracted 40,000 each and then yeah. they went to Stamford Bridge for the final Chelsea lost 2-1 in front of 35,000 so yeah so there's probably about 90,000 Millwall fans in that ground we've always pulled a big crowd at Wembley haven't we we've always managed to get <laughs> the fans that maybe haven't been down there for years turn out for these games and so, so there, there is nothing New in this life, as I've been told a few times over my life. There was something, I forget where I saw it now. Somebody put on Hoff, was it on Hoff or did somebody tweet us? Mm. Did somebody tweet us a sign that they had the, the program signed by both teams? I think I have seen that, and I don't know if I've got a photo of it here, in my, but I have seen that, yeah. Um, uh, Somebody like a, tweeted us a long time ago, didn't they? With some memorabilia, a post-match dinner. I think did I did I? I think I've seen yes. the, uh, yeah. the the menu. Uh, I'm sure it's. Let me get my Dropbox. You can't see this, listeners. So I'm going to tell you what I can see. That's going to be the most frustrating bit of radio footage you'll ever have, where you can't see what I can see. There it is the Football League South Cup final celebration dinner. Um, so it'd be the post-match dinner, I guess, for both clubs. Um, do you want to hear the menu, Neil? What they had? And Go then, on, then. Uh, my, my French accent is going to be suffering. So, if any French speakers out there hear this, laugh at me. Timbale de Omar à l'Américain. Timbale de Omar d'Amérique. Timbale? What's that? I don't know what Timbale is. Timbale de Omar à l'Américain. Riz Piaf. Pilaf Rice. Riz. <laughs> I, I can imagine the players going through this, can't you? <laughs> then we have that was the first, that was a starter. Then well, we definitely have, wouldn't have peel our rice for a starter, man, would we? <laughs> volet, volet. What is volet? Is that? That's not chicken. Is it? Volet. Uh, du sorry, du sorry, <laughs> volet, du sorry on casserole au primeur. Casserole, something casserole. I'm gonna have to look volet up. Well, bear with me, listeners. Pommes, pommes, macaire, so potatoes. Um, salad parisienne, I know what that is. That's a Parisian salad. Uh, <laughs> what's volet in French, Neil? Come on. Mate, you're, you're a much travelled man. You know, you're, you're, yeah, mate, I haven't even commanded the English language, let alone bloody started on the... It's poultry, it's chicken. Volet, I thought it was chicken. Volet, sorry chicken, sorry chicken. <laughs> <laughs> chicken casserole, basically. So did they make it in Surrey? 
<laughs> it's a chicken chicken casserole, basically. That was course. With some potatoes and then a, a, a Parisian salad. I don't know what goes. Listeners will have to correct me on what the Parisian salad is. The salad cream or something like that. Then we have um, Savarin, Savarin of Free Melba and Rocher de Glace Vanille. So ice cream, ice cream and fruit <laughs> for their afters with coffee. <laughs> It all sounds much less impressive when... Uh, well, I'm going to look up what Tim Barley is now. I'm, I'm curious, listeners. This is, I didn't expect to be closing the show out on this, Neil. On French recipes. Even I've just had a look to see Tim... what a Parisian salad is. Vegetable <laughs> Tim Barley. Yeah, but anybody know. that knows me knows that I do swerve a salad. <laughs> <laughs> and it appears as if it's one small can of sweet corn rinsed and drained. <laughs> Neil and Nick's cooking hour here, isn't it? Four pieces <laughs> of ham cut in strips, 100 grams of Gruyere cheese, finely diced. Very nice. Two tomatoes, diced. Uh-huh. Two boiled eggs. Uh, sliced quartered <laughs> and six beautiful lettuce leaves. <laughs> I've I found out what timbale is now as well. I've looked that up, listeners. It's like where you where you where you have your rice and you kind of you can't see that. It's where you make a little shape out of it, like a little cup shape, and it stands up. That's called the timbale, apparently. When we set off, the people are going to, I'm probably going to get messages now saying how disrespectful this is, but um, I, I don't think it is. I think the, the boys at the in the game would have respected this. Um, we finish up with their dinner, and that's really yeah. Well, that's not bad considering that there was rationing involved at that. No, time. I know. So um, yeah, well, you wouldn't have got a decent sized portion. It'd have been like the press room at Twickenham, <laughs> where the guy. <laughs> yeah, where Andrew, the guy that hands it out. <laughs> Never met a stingier man in my life. There we are. That, that was the, what they had in the aftermath of their 2 0 loss against Chelsea in the World Cup. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this, listeners. We, we, we didn't really have much shape. I wanted to try and get a certain sense of remembrance for me is a wider thing than just the kind of. Um, it includes all of the loss that comes with conflict. And I think we tried to touch on that because obviously it impacted both in a, uh, in the sense of losing loved ones and, you know, um, civilian loss, military loss, but also just the sheer economic impact of it all. I mean, it cost us everything, cost the country, everything, certainly cost me all, everything. Um, and there we are, and we finish we're up with... paying for this war for years, weren't we? I think we were indebted to the Americans until, what, the... Quite recently. Until the 90s, weren't we? Yeah, quite recently. Um, that's, But we had a nice chicken casserole. <laughs> you trivialise it. <laughs> and please, please don't take offence. Uh, uh, it's not meant in that way. It's meant it's meant as a tribute to all those because I think that was that was the story of the conflict for everyone. It was also about um, survival as much as it was. Um, yeah, we've tried to look upon the human aspects of it. I think. I think that. Yeah. I think I think that sometimes we go too dark on things. Easily done. And it's that time of year where people, you know, it's remembrance is important. Um, but I think you have to keep a well, sense. We do of remember. Them. We do. We don't forget. We both. We keep... No, absolutely. Um, and I think it's a sense of appreciating the the, the 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 thing in the round. It has an impact that goes way beyond um, the obvious. If you like, I don't know if that makes any sense, listeners. I think we've probably done enough, Neil. Don't you? I think we've probably done enough damage <laughs> to our reputation. Yeah, but let's not also forget that we are actually talking about remembrance on a show with acting. <laughs> Attention. <laughs> yeah. Um... In the title. But no, we don't, you yeah, know, we don't mean any offence by making it lighthearted. We obviously, we do. No, I, I, it's all, intended all to be. Um... To all of those people that did give up their lives. I know. I know that one of my granddads died just before the war and the other one served on the convoys. Tough, tough job. So um, it's interesting. I mean, I, I did, um, I'm just going off at a tangent now, listeners, but similar to what you, you're describing there, Neil, I did, um, there's a, an app, Ancestry.com, which I find it 
when you go on it, 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 it it's addictive for a while and then after but you can't keep doing it because you you can just go on and on and on and on but um right. one of my relations uh, I, I didn't know we never spoken of in the family but one of my um aunts a great aunt i suppose um she would have died at surrey docks in the in the, on the september the 7th in the in the opening wave of the blitzkrieg caught out in the open and she's registered as a death now there's nothing unusual about that story and you've described of your relations there neil is a story of all of us um so you know it affected every single family and you know in, and in some ways it, it continues to to this day and i think that's really the point of of remembrance um, so I hope we've done it some form of um, tribute in our own special way. Please do let us know what you think about it. Big thank you to Neil for joining me for this uh, one-off show. Thank you, mate. Cheers, mate. Uh, yeah, well, we'll be back soon, ready to... Yeah, international break this week. So we'll um, be back soon as the month proceeds with our uh, fixture show for next month. So um, until then, dear listeners, um, thank you for listening. Arriva Dirty Mule, there's a big thank you from Neil and myself, and uh, all the best to the next show. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.